been so excited about this moment in the program. It is my great pleasure, my great, great pleasure. Everybody, please have a seat. It is my great pleasure to introduce our keynote speaker, Luis J. Rodriguez, is a living legend. He is one of the greatest changemakers of our time. His writing has been compared to a modern-day Ernest Hemingway. He's been called the poet laureate of the barrio. Through his social activism and writing, he has emerged as one of the greatest contemporary writers in this country. He is known for speaking the truth. He writes about transformation, about human frailty, about forgiveness, healing, and injustice. He is at his core an activist who is committed and authentic in real, and speaks with authenticity and authority about that which he knows. His novel, Always Running, La Vida Loca, Gang Days in L.A., has become the Bible for anyone who wishes to understand the challenges faced by urban youth in today's society. Luis was born in 1954 on the U.S.-Mexico border. His family moved to South Central Los Angeles and later to the San Gabriel Valley. He joined a street gang when he was 11 years old. He was kicked out of his home and was homeless. He was arrested for numerous crimes and did time. He also became an activist in the Chicano movement of the 1960s and served as an organizer of an organization called Mecha. At 18, he faced a six-year prison sentence was hooked on heroin, and 25 of his friends had been killed from the barrio gang life. He decided to make a change and transformed himself, dedicated himself to social change. He worked a variety of jobs during this time, a steel worker, a truck driver, paper mill worker, carpenter, and mechanic. He also went to school, took night classes at the Los Angeles City College and got a job working as a reporter and a photographer for community papers. He was then hired as a daily newspaper reporter and started his career as a journalist telling stories from the streets and from the grounds. He began writing about his experience and started the Barrio Writers Workshop, doing freelancing work. In the 1980s, Louise began visiting prisons and juvenile facilities all over the country, meeting with youth and adult prisoners. He also became involved in the labor movement and was involved in one of the most significant labor struggles in the United States. At the age of 31, Louise moved to Chicago to become the editor of the People's Tribute, a national revolutionary magazine. He wrote about labor, about homelessness, about crime, and the arts. He also became involved in Chicago's poetry scene. In 1989, he started 
Tia Chucha Press, a poetry press. He also began freelancing for various U.S. publications. His book, Always Running, was published in 1993. Louise dedicated himself to promoting this book in his writing career. He went to 30 cities in three months, visiting universities, colleges, public and private schools, and prisons. The book became an international bestseller, over 250,000 copies in print. The book became a favorite of youth, of teachers. It was censored in public schools because of the message of empowerment that it carried. His other books have followed, Hearts and Hands. This book is an absolute must for anybody who wants to make social change. Creating Community in Violent Times, The Republic of East L.A. Luis is also an accomplished poet. Poems Across the Pavement, Concrete River, My Nature is Hunger. Two children's book, American, uh, America is Her Name, It Doesn't Have to Be This Way, A Barrio Story. In 1994, Luis helped found Youth Struggling for Survival, working with gang and non-gang youth in Chicago. That same year, he began working with the Mosaic Multicultural Foundation, using poetry, storytelling, drumming, dance, and rituals to address youth empowerment. Louise and his wife also founded the League of Revolutionaries for New America. They also founded the Tiatucha Cafe Cultural, a bookstore, a cafe, art gallery, and performance space for youth in Silmar, California. Most importantly, Luis has not only become a symbol of our times, but has painted the picture, a vision for our future and the future of our children, and how we can survive through building on a culture of mutual respect and an understanding for who we are, and creating a united front for the causes and struggles against injustice. Let's give up a big San Francisco welcome to Luis Rodriguez. Thank you. Gracias. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's an extreme honor to be here. I want to apologize that I can only be here for this talk. I have to leave right away. And uh, I feel bad about that because it's always better to be part of the process you're in. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm assured that it's been very good for everybody, right? You guys are going having a good conference? I hope so. Yeah. When we make things what they are. So if it's good, you made it that way. So um, I do have a, a very busy schedule. I'm actually uh, part of the – there's an ad hoc committee on gang violence and youth development in Los Angeles, and I'm on the community advisory committee of this, of this group. And we just finished finalizing our gang intervention model that we hope the City of Valley will adopt. Also, a whole gang intervention street peace plan. It's probably the best plan that I've seen anywhere in the country. It's was done by a number of people in the streets who know the streets, people working in the prisons, in the juvenile facilities, as well as in the community, and I hope that you all get a, a, a copy of it if you can. What I'm going to do is uh, whoever is in charge here, I'll leave a copy here just so at least it's in the hands. Uh, I'll leave it with Mr. Adachi because I think he'll make some good use of it. Anyway, it's, a, it's, it's very small pages, but it's a kind of important step to reimagine the work that we do in our communities. And uh, I wanted to be um, 
spread out as wide as possible. Next week, I'll be in Chicago, and I'm also going to be for a big conference called Stronger uh, Branches, Stronger Roots. Then I'm going to Philadelphia to do our arts and the criminal justice system conference. So this, I'm like an evangelist. I'm going around spreading the words about imagination, how reentry can work, how we can have urban peace, how we can change our communities. Uh, next month, I will be in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras to take this message. Because obviously, um, a lot of what's going on down there has direct relationship to Los Angeles and California and what happens here. Because as you know, we've exported tens of thousands of P kids from coming out of the prisons, coming out of the juvenile facilities, in the gangs, to countries that never had this before. And now they're having a tremendous amount of problems with kids shooting each other, initiating gangs, robberies, a lot of things. They never used to be crack in those countries, despite horrendous wars they went through. Now there's crack. Now there's a lot of things. And we have to take responsibility, by the way. We can't just say it's on them. We have to take policy responsibility for this. So I'm, I'm active on all levels, including internationally, because now this is a global issue. And we're at the heart of it here in California. As you probably know, California is known as the place where most gangs and most, you know, trouble comes from. People can uh, count the beginnings of the Hell Angels in California, Crips and Bloods in California, Sureño, Norteño in California. We have a reputation out there in the world. You know, people think we're in pretty bad shape here. And I know because I go around the country and people are complaining because the big problem in other parts of the country is what? California-based gangs and youth being sent over there. And I don't know if you're aware, but, you know, uh, not just Crips and Bloods, but also Sureño, Norteño are spread out all over the country now. So this is something we have to look at is what's happening. But I also know the good things about California. I also know the imagination and the power of community, and I want to say a few words about what's happening here in San Francisco with people like Jeff Adachi and others in this city, which I see as models of trying to imagine something different and new and vital and good and decent because we need it now. And so California can also be a good place for good, powerful, you know, effective, meaningful work among youth and those coming out of prisons. So give yourselves a hand. Please, give yourselves a hand. Um, I have a little bit of time here with you, so I want to share with you a few things. Um, apparently, we're not going to have a, be able to have questions and answers, but I want to be able to at least bring some uh, ideas. I want to move our ideas. I want to move your concepts. I don't want to tell you what you probably already know, and I don't want to tell you that I think I know more than you do. I just want to move a few things, move the imagination a little bit as you go through the rest of your conference here. Uh, but I want to read some poems. The reason why is because people think, well, what does poetry have to do with reentry and juvenile justice and criminal justice? And as you know, it has a lot to do with it. And I'm just going to read poems from well-known people who kind of address some of the things that I felt are related to this issue. And I'm going to start with a poem, a short little poem. These are short little excerpts of poems by Octavio Paz. Who knows who Octavio Paz is? For those who don't know, he is one of Mexico's leading poets. And this is from a larger poem. I'm going to read this line. It almost hit me as this, was, this is the way people must feel and the way I felt coming out of either the criminal justice system or heroin addiction or some kind of 
um, what I call the hell on earth issues that we have to deal with. You're going from hell on earth back to earth. And people don't recognize that you've just gone through something terribly initiatory. And this short little thing kind of says a lot of the way it feels. With no name, no face, the death I want bears my name. It has my face. It is my mirror and it is my shadow. The soundless voice that speaks my name. The ear that listens when I am silent. The intangible wall that blocks my way. The floor that suddenly opens. And then uh, one of my favorite lines of poetry by Theodore Rodkey. Anybody know who Theodore Rodkey is? If you don't know, he's a great poet. <laughs> I mean, these are great poets, but I know poetry is one of these things that a lot of people aren't very hip on. It's not, not your fault, you know. <laughs> you know, here's something about a culture. A culture that doesn't have poetry at the heart of it is not a very good culture. And there are cultures, and you know, very important. There are cultures, poor countries. My good friend just picked me up from Nicaragua. Country of poets, you know? There are countries where poetry is so much part of everybody. And they're poor. And they don't got resources, but they got poetry. And I tell you, that's a good culture. And unfortunately, our United States with so much resources, so much wealth, where's poetry in our lives? Pushed to the side. You don't even know who the great poets are. It's not nobody's fault. People don't even know how to teach poetry in schools. But you know what? People, almost everybody does poetry. I want to ask you, how many of you actually into poetry? I'm sure. I know it. I know because it's, how do you express yourself? How do words really put together what you've been through? And even if you do it for your own personal therapy, it's powerful. So this is one of the best lines I ever heard in poems. It's by Theodore Rodkin. And it goes, what is madness but nobility of soul at odds with circumstance. I'll say it again. What is madness but nobility of soul at odds with circumstance? Beautiful, beautiful line of poetry. And um, from Maya Angelou, who will compu compute the lonely nights made less lonely by your songs or by the empty pots made less tragic by your tales. The importance of telling your story. The importance of not letting it sit somewhere and be forgotten and your life be forgotten. Um, I'm going to read another one, then I'm going to talk a little bit. But let me get this one other really beautiful poet. Again, poetry is part of my life, as was mentioned. I included it in my book, Hearts and Hands. I start every chapter with either a poem or a, or a saying. And it's just important to have it in our lives. And I'm going to end with, um, well, this, this part. <laughs> Are you ready to go? No. Um, I'm going to end this part with a poem by uh, Amy Sazeri. Who, anybody know who he is? Great poet from the French Caribbean part of the world. And um, um, from, he's part of what was called the Negritude poets, who were very important, powerful poetry, bringing out that aspect of poetry from the former slave colonies in the Caribbean out to the world and a French-speaking part, but also, of course, it speaks to the English-speaking and Spanish-speaking world where slavery was brought into the Americas. And this poem, when I read it, I think about this is the way I felt as a kid, running the streets, not knowing who I was, feeling that there was some kind of tiger or animal or lion inside and not knowing that, that what it was 
and not knowing that it could have been a good thing and only bringing out the destructive aspects of it and wishing that somebody would stop me and not having anywhere or anybody that could do that. So it goes like this. I will retrieve the secret of great combustions and great communications. I would say storm. I would say river. Tornado, I would say. I would say leaf. I would say tree. I will be watered by all rains, dampened by all dews. I will rumble onward like frenetic blood on the slow stream of my eye, my words like wild horses, like radiant children, like clots, like curfew bells in the temple ruins, like precious stones so distant as to discourage miners. He who will not understand me will not understand the roaring of a tiger. And uh, yes... It's good to have poetry. It's good to bring in these words because um, we're going to deal with language right now. Language is my passion. And, uh, and the reason why I would say this is because we need to have a better uh, interaction and dynamic with language. I'm always concerned that young people are creating amazing language today, but the older people aren't able to feed it back. Hear what I'm saying? It used to be that older people were the poets and the language people and the ones that could bring it to young people. And it used to be young people would look up and say, I want to be like this person. He's got words. He's got language. And I remember in the 60s, the last poets and all these people that used to speak this truth and everybody fell, fell into it because it just cast a spell on you. But now it's the young people with language. They're the ones putting it out there. They're the ones spinning all those stories and tales and stuff like that. And they're not getting a lot of guidance, but they're putting it out there. And it's good that they're doing it. But it's important that some of us who are older also get into language and the power of it and how we can impact the world with words. Because words sometimes or a word can save somebody's life. You hear what I'm saying? And words, dialogue, somebody talking to somebody, heart to heart, can probably do more good for anybody who's troubled and pain in those hells than almost any big, giant, thousand, million-dollar program, billion-dollar prison system, anything that people put into it. Sometimes that works out better than anything. So I wanted to express that because, to me, that's important. Uh, one of the first things we did in this plan was to fight with language. The mayor of L.A., who I think is trying to do something, I'm not here to down anybody. I, I look at L.A. as having a lot of problems, a lot of issues, but also like the rest of, like what's happened here, some really good people. And in L.A. we have an extra big burden to carry because L.A. is known as the gang capital of the United States and probably in the world. If you don't know how bad things are, from 1980 to the year 2000, there was an estimated 10,000 young people killed in the streets of L.A. due to gang violence. That's like a little like civil war in some country. The death rate for South Central L.A. alone is as great as the death rate of the worst countries that, of murder and homicides in the world, including South Africa and El Salvador. The death rate of Latinos... Males is twice that. The death rate of African-American males is twice the Latino rate. 
This is the U.S. of A. This is not some place that you, you, you don't have to deal with. This is our country. L.A. has a big burden. And unfortunately, the L.A. response has not been very good. Mostly suppression. Mostly the prisons. The majority of people feeding into the very vast California prison system come from L.A. That's not an answer. That's a burden that we have to carry in that city. The gang injunctions, another big issue, a big problem. The squeezing of communities instead of bringing communities together, instead of getting young people and adults and mentors and teachers and people come together and parents and all the people, they squeeze the communities. They don't just criminalize individuals. They don't just criminalize a couple of people. They criminalize whole neighborhoods. And, and this, as you know, is being sent out around the country. This is the L.A. model. And it's not working, and yet they still send it out. Um, one of the first things we did, the mayor has a new gang reduction plan. And, again, I think this mayor is trying. I have to say he's probably the first mayor to even go there, so that's a big effort. But he needs to be challenged. <laughs> you know, It's not good enough, a gang reduction plan. Uh, most of what they want to do, and I'll try to summarize it quickly, is to say that there will be 70% prevention and 30% intervention. But it sounds really good, except that it's all being run out of the Homeland Security Office. Uh, yeah. And the police are, are, are in, involved with it all the way through. The gang reduction zones are actually zones based on police districts. So we're saying, okay, we don't want to say we don't need police. We don't want to do that. We need the police. We need the, the district attorney's office. We need the whole system. What we need it, though, is to be part of a whole package that's based on community leading the way. It's a whole different concept. Because we want the police officers to be able to work with us in a way that's respectful, meaningful, and with some dignity. We need it both ways. So we, do, we don't want to say we don't want them involved, but what we have found that when it's being led by law enforcement and not community, this is what you're seeing, squeezing of communities. And when you squeeze communities, what are you doing? You're pushing people out. You're not solving the problem. All you're doing is pushing the problem outward or somewhere else. And I'm sure this is happening in, in, in the Bay Area, but in, in L.A., just so you know, we still got a lot of gangs in L.A. and South Central and East L.A., but now we got L.A. gangs all around the surrounding area, Inland Empire, San Diego County, Orange County, Lancaster, Palmdale. They're all spreading out. And not only that, you got them in Arizona, in Nevada. You got them in Idaho. I was in Storm Lake, Idaho, in the middle of nowhere, and they had L.A. gangs there. They were all worried about the Surtresa gangs that were all over L.A., I mean, Idaho. I was in Delaware, uh, Wilmington, Delaware, and there was a big gang war between Lankins and Surtrese. So what happens when you squeeze communities, you're not solving the problem. You're just spreading it out. And as you know, because I've written about this, and I just said earlier, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, Mexico, you have L.A. gangs all over those places now. 
And so, therefore, we're squeezing it on an international level. I even have heard that we have L.A.-based gangs in Cambodia from Cambodian kids that came from war in Cambodia, grew up in L.A., joined the gangs, got deported back, and now have L.A. gangs in Cambodia. In Armenia, there's L.A. gangs there. there. In other words, we're spreading it around the world. Because when you squeeze communities, you don't deal with the root of the problem. All you're doing is spreading it out, and you're not even solving the problem there. Somebody could say, well, if the gang injunctions and the gang enhancements could actually solve the problem in L.A., maybe somebody could have the case and say, well, it's too bad it's happening over there, but we're solving it here. It's not even solving it in L.A. because it's still bad and it's worse than it's ever been in L.A. So we have to think of a new imagination and a new way of doing it. One of the things we wanted to do was the language was important so that we include a language that is positive, not just what you're against. Sure, you don't want gang violence. Sure, you don't want any more deaths. You don't want all these things. But what are you really for? Every program seems to be about the problems and the trouble and the deficits in our community and kind of ways of correcting it. We need an imaginative way of approaching this so that it's not just looking at the problems of our community and looking at our community and say we're all a bunch of bad, messed up people and we deserve to be corrected. We need to have a, a plan that says this is what's good about the community. The community already has internal resources. It already has people with brains. It already has, even young people in the gangs can be useful for peace. That's what we got to be able to say. Even the gang members can be useful for peace. So... Our idea was to have a street peace plan, not a gang reduction plan. Let's work for peace and not about just reducing gangs, but let's work it so that everybody participates in making peace a reality in our communities. And you know what? You can't do it without the gang members involved. But you also got to involve the parents, the schools, the businesses, and you got to involve the law enforcement. You got to involve everybody. It's got to be everybody's participation, everybody's contribution, and everybody can sit down at the table together. If we're having a hard time getting gang kids to sit at the table, let me tell you what's really hard, getting policymakers to sit at the table. I mean, they're talking about some rivalries. That's even worse than some of the gang rivalries going on. You know, I, I, I thought it was funny when, um, remember a few years ago when they divided the country red and blue? I go, Wow. They just divided the country like they do the L.A. streets, you know, and the California streets, right? Red and blue, you know. It's like, what happened? We just made this a big, big, it's part of our culture now. We're looking at this way now. Now the country's divided red and blue. So that's, the rivalries are now spreading out, and it's bigger than just the youth. But the answer is also within that. One of the things that I saw is that somebody was trying to put a plan in which they were trying to say, we're going to work with these gang kids, but we're going to ride off the hardcore kids. Have you heard those plans? We're going to write them off. 10% of the youth supposedly cost 100% of the problems. So let's write off the 10%. Okay, now that sounds good. The math seems to go right. Except and when you're dealing with human beings, you cannot deal with those kind of numbers. Human beings are human beings. I had to challenge this because I was sitting in this ad hoc committee, and, I was, and these people were putting all these charts, and I had to get up and say, I don't, I don't know about charts. I know about people. I know about kids who are homeless, don't have family, who when they get out of jail or juvenile facility shouldn't even go back to their family. You hear what I'm saying? Shouldn't even go back to those neighborhoods with all the screaming going on and the bullets flying and the rivalries going on 
And we're saying, okay, we're going to get these kids out of their community, put them in a prison, don't do nothing for them, and then bring them back to the same hell they came from, and we don't do nothing for them? I don't know about charts, but I know about human beings, and you cannot do that to human beings. You cannot make human beings go through these hell over and over and over again. One of the most important – okay, let me tell you about this chart. So the guys, people are saying, okay, we're going to get rid of 10%. And I go, well, the problem with that – Personally, is if that was done, and it's always been done, right? We always get good. But if I was done consciously, I wouldn't be here. And many of you wouldn't be here. You hear what I'm saying? I have worked with the so-called hardcore, and I'm talking about hardcore. I'm not talking about people playing at it. I'm not talking about wannabes. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about hardcore people. It's a hard, different kind of work. Not everybody should do that work, by the way. Not everybody should do that work. You've got to get the right people. But if you've got the right people, you can change those kids' lives. And not only that, some of them become real leaders in the community. And some of them even get up like me and read poetry. Some of them become people that you want to actually be running your programs, and some of you are sitting in your, right here in the room. So we can't write off anybody. That's the point. Ten percent, no. Nobody gets written off. Nobody gets written off. We have to have something that incorporates everybody. Because those 10%, if you write them off, guess what? They're still going to be a problem, right? You're not really getting rid of them. You're just pushing them somewhere else, and they're always going to be a problem unless you interact with them in a positive, meaningful, respectful way so that they themselves learn what it is to be positive and meaningful, and they themselves can change this community for the better. These are just concepts that I want to throw out there, but again, just to move your imaginations. I'm sure some of these things you already know and you're thinking about, some of you are already incorporating. But I always feel like I'm battling not individuals, but a whole culture. There is a culture out there that sees punishment as the reason, rationale for what to do with people who are in trouble. That's the main thing that they do. And now they have rehabilitation, but really that's punishment and then rehabilitation on the side. And most of it isn't even rehabilitation. What does punishment do? I'm going to tell you what it does, and I'll say it in general because it's different for different people, and I'm not trying to speak for anybody who's had different experiences, but I will tell you what it generally does. Whatever trouble you were in, whatever pain you were in, whatever destructive mode you were in, it tends to enshrine it deeper into your life. It tends to make you be that for the rest of your life. The worst act of your life becomes your whole life. Especially if you spend many, 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 many years in jail just sitting, not nothing to do, nowhere to go, not getting nowhere. And that, that really is who you are after a while. My idea is that, and it's not just my idea, this is the idea of anybody. When you have people who are troubled, we shouldn't see that as like, this is terrible this is the worst thing that happened. We should see it as the possibility of something new and vital happening in our community. Youth have to be in trouble. You hear what I'm getting at? They have to. How are they going to find themselves? How are they going to know who they are? I could not abide by the system that I grew up into. I started in South Central L.A. in the streets. I could not abide by the fact that I was poor and I could look at a store and not own nothing. I became a robber, a stealer. I'm not saying this is good. I'm saying, but look, it makes sense. 
I don't got nothing, but I can go to a store and they got it behind glass and somebody's got money and got it and I don't got no money. I started stealing when I was seven years old. What does a seven-year-old know? I'm only making connections based on what reality is. I don't got nothing. They got something. I want it. Because TV is telling me to have it. Tim Me is telling, trying to sell me this stuff. They're telling me I should have this. I can't have it. Now, I know what you're, some of you are thinking. Oh, he's justifying. <laughs> I, know, I know all this stuff. I know what people think. Okay. And I will tell you honestly, man, I don't think that people should be stealing. I don't think it's right to steal. Especially because after a while, you're not really stealing against the system. You start stealing against your family. You start stealing the people you love. You think you can make that separation? Pretty soon you're stealing anybody who's got something you want. What you need is when kids are in that kind of trouble, punishing them doesn't take that away from them. Give them a sense of what they're really trying to go for. The gold in their life that they really want is not the bling bling in behind the case. It's the bling bling and gold they carry inside themselves. Let them know they already have something that they don't have to steal for. Let them feel powerful and alive and, and, and want it. Want it. Where families embrace you. My family would have embraced me, but they're so damn poor. They work so damn hard. My dad had a job from 4.30 in the morning to 9.30 at night. My mom worked in the garment industry. And if you know anything about our garment industry, you know that I will eat you alive. I don't blame my parents. They had no time for a kid like me. Somebody was going to fall through the cracks, and it was me. A family to embrace you? I didn't have that. So you go on the street, and you find people just like me, other people who have got no families, who... Not, I'm not even talking about abusive families. There are abusive families. There are terrible families. There are families that neglect you. I'm talking about regular working class families who are good parents, who take, go to church on Sundays, and they still can't take care of you because they're being forced to have to survive. And guess what? Some of them find themselves in the street, and that becomes your gang. Teach a kid that they already have the gold inside of them, that they already have gifts that they were born with these beautiful gifts to offer the world. And you know what? A lot of my trouble was because I was trying to assert some gift of mine against a world that was trying to push it back. I was a big mouth, I will have to admit. I'm still a big mouth. I'm still a big mouth. And, I, you know, but the problem is, though, if you don't got guidance and support, big mouths can be very bad people, dumb people. Very, I know. I was one of them could do some dumb things. You know what I'm saying. And I'm the first one to admit that I might have been a big mouse. I might have gifts, but I did a lot of dumb things. So I'm not trying to justify my being dumb or, or doing things that weren't right. But I do know that most of my struggles, like the struggles I see with kids today, is, their, is like that poem. The nobility of soul is at odds with circumstances. They have a nobility inside and there's no place to take it. They can't take it in the home because their parents are slapping them around. They can't take it in the schools because the schools could give a hoot about them. You know what I'm talking about. You don't, we don't care about you. You do what we tell you to do. You fall in line. They can't even take it to churches. And I, I believe in churches, but I've been to churches where they don't got no... they got churches with zero tolerance. Who the heck, who the heck came up with that? The whole idea was the church was to tolerate. They got churches with zero tolerance now. In other words, some people don't got nowhere to go. So, so then where is their nobility? And how does it get out? And how does it get expressed? And how does it get seen? Because when you do a noble thing, it needs to be seen. When you do a noble thing, a community needs to be there and say, wow, that's great. And I will tell you from my own personal experience, because I've raised 
four kids, three boys, which is hard as hell, and a beautiful daughter, and of course, I have four grandkids. And I would say that I made every mistake you can make as a father. I'm the first one to admit it because I have to. Because if you're not going to admit your mistakes, you don't need me up here. You think I'm up here because I did everything right? No, I'm up here because I did a lot of things wrong. But I learned a few things. I was not a good father to my oldest kids. This is something that I will always regret for the rest of my life. And if anybody says that they don't have regrets, they haven't lived. People say, I got no regrets. Okay, you haven't lived, man, or you're lying. You have to have some regrets. And I have a lot of them. And one of them is that I was not a father to my kids. This was wrong on my part. It was a pain that I will always carry. But what's worse is what happened to those kids. My two oldest kids suffered for not having a decent father in their life. And I began to realize how important it was. My dad wasn't there for me, but I didn't know. I didn't know that I was going to be like my dad. You know how much I hated my dad? And then I ended up just like him. And you know what? They have paid a big price. And as some of you already know, my oldest son, and I have to talk about him almost everywhere I speak because he's still with me. I'm somebody that I will always think about. And, and because I'm always in touch with him, he's somebody that I always got to think about what we're going to do. He's now serving 28 years in prison for three counts of attempted murder. And nobody really wants their kids. So whatever I did as a gang member, whatever I did as a drug addict, whatever I went through, I never wanted my kids to go through this. And a part of him, unfortunately, even though I tried to keep this away from him, was trying to be like me. Can you imagine that? How come he couldn't be like a writer poet? No, he wanted to be like this, this idea that he had, this ideal of a gangster that he thought I was. You know, and, and the sad thing about it is that it, it was me. I can't pretend it wasn't. I didn't know how to put it together. I was trying to deny that life. I was trying to say I didn't, I, I, I didn't talk about it. I should have talked about it. Because, you know, I didn't talk about it. He idealized it. I have all these tattoos. I can't hide from these tattoos. They're there. I'm not going to get rid of them. I'm too old for that. But the point is they're there, you know. And the thing is, he sees that and he says, that's what I want. I want this life. Whatever that idea was. And I, couldn't, I wouldn't talk about it. I should have talked about it. This is why I did finally write Always Running, to talk about these things that nobody wants to talk about. You know that Always Running, there are several generations of gang members in parts of L.A. Some of them go back to the 1920s. I used to know in my neighborhood grandmothers chasing their kids down the street with tattoos on their arms, old pachucas from way old, from old days. And you know what? People, mothers who lost two or three sons. People who lost a lot of people in the gang warfare since that time. Tens of thousands of kids died, gone. And you know what? Nobody's ever written about it. Nobody had written about the L.A. Chicano gang experience until Always Running came out. That's a shame. It takes that long for somebody to do it. And, of course, as soon as I did it, I got my butt kicked. <laughs> you know? I mean, anybody writing about this stuff is going to get their butt kicked. That's part of what it takes. It's a big risk to tell your story. It's a huge risk to tell your story. But it was worth it. And I had to make a decision to publish this book or not. And I was almost at the decision where I wouldn't do it. Because I said, okay, I wrote the story. It was great therapy for me to write this. I didn't realize how healing it was for opening up all this stuff. I, I could have just dropped it at that. But you know what? Somebody has to take that risk to put these stories out here. Because it turned out that once the book came out, people began to relate to it.
for what it said, the stories that it told. And not just Chicanos, not just other Latinos. I saw it in white kids, even poor white kids, African-Americans, Asian kids. I go all over the country, and people are reading the book, and they're relating to it. The story of a lost young person. Whose story is that? It's probably everyone here. A young person who isn't embraced by family, isn't embraced by community, isn't embraced by schools. That's a lot of people. And so the story began to resonate only because it told that story and somebody had to take a risk. You know, when the book came out, uh, my former rival gang members put a contract on my head. I had my own family. Well, they had already disowned me, so it didn't really matter, but they triply disowned me after the book came out. I mean, I had families in my neighborhood and in other neighborhoods that wouldn't ever talk to me. That, a lot of people were pissed off. And I still had to push this book through because the healing power of telling one's story was so important that I needed to do it in spite the risk. And I remember getting a call from somebody in prison because I was dealing with prisoners for many, many years and I was, uh, I'd visited a lot of prisoners. I got a call from one of my uh, homies who wanted to put a stop to it. But to me, that meant he was going to hurt somebody. And I told him, don't. Deal with it. Don't touch it. I don't want nobody hurt because of this book. I don't want nobody to talk to it. Just leave it alone. Leave it alone. You know how you can start fires like that, little sparks here and there? So I don't want nobody hurt by this book. If somebody's going to come after me, let them come. Because if I'm going to take this risk, then I'm going to go all the way with it. And if I'm going to fight for peace, and I'm going to fight for our communities, and I'm going to fight for our families, I'd rather die for that than what I was willing to die for nothing when I was a kid. If that's what it takes, I will do that. Now, I'm not stupid. <laughs> I'm not going to invite people to hurt me. I'm not going to invite anybody to hurt my family. But I think the thing is, is you have to have a level of dignity that says, I need to put this out and I will take the risks involved. And I've gone back to the prisons where supposedly somebody had a contract. I talked to these, these guys. I call them young men. I'm sorry. They're probably not that young, but... I'm at the age where now almost everybody is young to me, you know, so. And you know what? And they were fine with me. And I remember that I went, I went to San Quentin one time, and I did a big poetry reading in the maximum security yard. Because, you know, San Quentin has no place for anybody to do these things, because every one of their places taken over and so overcrowded. You know, they don't got no more place. The only the chapel is probably the only place they could still have things happening. So they had us in the maximum security yard. And Metallica had played there like a month before, and I'm supposed to compete with Metallica, you know, because... They had me with a mic, and I'm supposed to read poetry, and hopefully some people pay attention. So, but I did it. I went and did it, and you know what? I was surprised how many people. It wasn't just me. It was several other poets, and there was some people with some drumming, and there was a saxophone player, and we tried to get some people interested. We had a lot of people there, and then one guy comes up to me, and he says, you know what? All those other guys that are, that are picking weights and playing basketball, and guess what? They're, they're listening to you, man. Don't worry about it. They're all listening to you. So we had a really good audience, but at one point, I saw a guy I hadn't seen in 30 years. One of my homies from 30 years ago, doing a life sentence since then. And he comes up with my book. And he, you know, I hadn't seen him. Big homie, been through whatever he's been through. I could tell, I could see his face. I could still see some of it, but he was really different. He was just, you know, I hadn't seen him in 30 years. He comes out with my book. And I don't know what he's thinking. And I really don't care. <laughs> because, again, I know why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm not trying to hurt nobody. I'm not trying to get nobody in trouble. I'm just trying to tell my story. By the way, I changed people's names because I didn't want, I wasn't to protect not just the innocent but the guilty. I was protecting everybody, including the guilty. So I wasn't going to rat on nobody. It was just a matter of me telling the story. So anyway, um, <laughs> but what happens, the guy comes up to me and then he says, 
you know what, after we talked for a while, he was glad to see me, but I didn't know what he was thinking. Finally, you know, he says, whatever you do, help the kids. And you know why? Because he couldn't help them anymore. And maybe whatever he was doing, he didn't believe anymore. It didn't matter. He was caught in that web. He could not pull himself out of that web. The web that, you know, people put in the prisons, the tattoos, when they're coming out. You know what that web is? The web of the crazy life. La vida loca that holds you. And you know what? You're not a fly in the web. You're a spider in it. You yourself are pulling yourself deeper and deeper in that web. Your own pathologies, your own pains, your own traumas, deeper and deeper. And this is why it's harder to unravel from it. Because you yourself are participant in that. And that he was caught in that web. And he knew that he couldn't help nobody. But he says, you help the kids. Well, I think we have to help these young men unravel themselves from that web. And the idea isn't to just pull them out of a web and let them loose out there. It's the idea is to find another web that will hold them, that will teach them, that will guide them, and will let them express their true nobility, their true dignity, and their true passions in art. We have to help them find a community. What do you do when you go to prison? One of the key things about prison that we forget and that we don't address is the fact that it is one of the most important initiatory experiences of a young person's life. Anybody know what I mean by initiation? You all know what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the kids beating up on you, that initiation. I'm talking about how do you learn to be from one stage of your life to another unless you go through an initiation. Initiation has the meaning of, an, an, of, of ignition, of starting out, of spark, of initiating something. And, you know, the gang kids get it because they know you want to be in our gang. We're going to initiate you, you know, beat you up for whatever long it takes. And then you go through something. You hear what I'm saying? And you come out of it. You're thinking, I've been through something. Now I'm in the gang. I belong somewhere. Well, the gangs get it. And you know what they're doing? They're filling the void that exists in the community because the community doesn't get it. We need to initiate young people again and do it properly and do it in a healthy way and do it in a way where they really get seen. Of course, we're not going to get them around and beat them up, but we're going to get them to be seen for who they really are. And if they get in trouble and if they're hardcore kids, some of those hardcore kids are leaders. They can't lead in the world that they're in, so they're going to lead in this world. Let's get them in a world where they can really lead, really do some good, and be out there making something happen in this world instead of destroying the lives of themselves and others. In other words, hardcore kids also have gifts and passions and art, and we can help them get somewhere. So having initiation is important. But what happens when you come out of prison? Nobody's there for you. People start leaving you actually early on in prison. My son, for example, has already done 10 years of his time. And what he's told me, he told me after seven years he was in jail, he wrote me a letter. And in that letter he said, you know, Dad, I think I finally understand what you were trying to do for me. And he wanted to apologize for all the pain he had caused. But he also wanted to say, I get what you're saying. And it took me this long, but I get it. And that's really important for a parent to hear. You hear. But you know what? How many parents don't hear that? Because many parents and many family members aren't even there for the prisoners. You know what I'm talking about. He tells me, Dad, two or three years, these guys, they don't got nobody for them. The difference with me is that I got my family still there. Because when they get out of prison, who's going to be there for them? The system is going to be there for them, but you know the system is not family and it's not community. It's not going to help them. 
my son is going to come back. He can get paroled four more years from now. He has to do a minimum of 14 years of his 28th sentence. 14 years he will have to be institutionalized. He will be in bad shape coming out. But I'll tell you and I will guarantee you, when he gets out, he will have family and community to come home to. He will have that. And you know what? That's something every one of these young men and women need. Every one of them need that. What, what kind of world is it that we look at some troubled kid and we're all going to unite and say, okay, you're troubled, you're in bad shape, you need consequences, we're going to put you in prison. Uh, the judge is there, the defending lawyer, the, the state's attorney, the parents, everybody's there. But then when he gets out, where are all those people who sent him off? Where are all those people, the judges and all the, where are they? They don't care. They've written them off. If you're going to do something to people's lives, you better be there for all their lives. Because this is what we want to teach them, to be there for their own kids. But we're going to be a society that says, we're going to, put, we're going to punish you and cut you off. And then what do they learn? To cut off people. Because it's too painful to care. It's too painful to be involved. And you know what? We teach people that. We cut them off early. And we teach them, don't care. Because it's better not to care. How many times I've been to poetry workshops in prisons where people don't want to express themselves. Why? Because it shows weakness and vulnerability. If they express themselves and other people know about it, it could hurt them. This is the world that we created for them. That's not the world that we should, they should be in. If we're going to give people consequences, one of the consequences should be that we should help them heal themselves. That's got to be one of the consequences. Heal yourself. Find your healing path. Find a practice that allows you to be full in yourself. So when you get out, you're a full human being and you can help somebody else. You've been through something, something that very few people get to go, even though it's more and more people every year. You come back and you help somebody. That experience is a meaningful experience. We say it's not. We're writing them off. No, it is meaningful. I don't like people being sent to prison for all these years. I don't like the fact that some of them shouldn't even be in prison. I don't like the fact that, you know, they're just rotting away. But guess what? If they're going through that, help them come back and enhance and build and reimagine and recreate that community. Help them be an asset to the community, not somebody that comes back and takes from the community. This is how we got to see it from the front end to the back end. Not just one end and push them out and then we're not there for the end and we don't care about this part. Somebody else can deal with that. Some parole agent who's overworked. Some, you know, somebody else who can't handle it because they got 20,000 caseloads. Or some, you know, therapist or some treatment program. We want to put it somewhere else. Bring that young person back into the community with real community. And you will see a difference in that young person. I have seen it. This is what's important about what we do. Do the front end and do the back end and cover the whole ground. Cover the whole ground. We have so many exits and nothing at the other end of it. I'm going to tell you something that I guess has to do with literature, but it's very important. And I'm trying to get into language and literature. How many of you have actually read the Odyssey? Okay. You all know what the Odyssey is? It's Homer, right? Odysseus, the story of Odysseus. It's the foundation of Western literature. It actually has roots, and they won't tell you this, in Africa. But it really is the foundation of Western literature. When you think about the Greeks and the storytelling, 
Nobody knows if Homer actually existed. It doesn't even matter. That story was told for thousands of years, for almost a thousand years without being written down. People were telling it orally. The story of Odysseus and the life after the Battle of Troy. And if you ever read that book, I will try to summarize it really quickly because you need, it's very telling for us. The whole source, the whole basis of that story and the story of probably a lot of stories in Western literature, I summarize as the battle to get home. That's what that is. This kid, Odysseus, was sent to war against Troy, spent 10 years in that war. And then he got, on the way back home, he got lost and went through all these amazing adventures. His whole struggle to get back, another 10 years, 20 years he was gone. He was struggling hard to get back. He met Cyclops. He met Sirens. He met all these terrible monsters. He had all kinds of adventures. And he couldn't get home, but that was his struggle. Do you see that story, how it resonates with all of us? It's all our stories. We're always trying to get home. But where is really home? You think it's a, just a place? It's finding the home you carry inside you. The homing instinct that we need to have inside ourselves. Because when you're out in the world, how do you center yourself? How do you find home and peace within yourself? If we don't help these young people or any young people, whether in prisons or outside of prison, find home, we're not doing them any justice. And it's in our literature. Now here's the funny thing about Odysseus. He has a son. The first part of the story is not about Odysseus. It's about his son Telemachus. His son Telemachus didn't get raised by a father. You heard the story, right? We've been there. His father's gone. His mother is trying to hold off all these suitors from around the world that are trying to take over the kingdom, and they're slowly taking it over. They're, taking, they're coming in. They're living in the palace. They're eating all the food. And Telemachus doesn't have the strength to stand up to them. He has no father. You hear what I'm saying? He has no infrastructure, no guidance, no structure. A father helps do that. A mother does some other things. And, of course, when a mother doesn't have a father around, the mother does both of them, as you know. But really the idea is that father helps with structure, mother helps with nurturing, embracing, and welcoming and acknowledgement. And a mother casts a beautiful spell on the kid, but a mother can also cast a terrible spell if a mother is also not hurting. A father does two things, can bless you or curse you, right? And if you don't have a father, that's a curse. You carry that for the rest of your life. So Telemachus is weak, he can't, doesn't know what to do, and guess who comes to guide him out of this? Mentor. Mentor comes along. That's where the word mentor comes from. You know, mentors, we talk about mentors. Well, it comes from mentor. And mentor is actually Athena in disguise. And this is important because these stories really resonate. They might be fantasy stories, but guess what? Athena represents the feminine. The importance of having the feminine in your life. The masculine and the feminine together. That's really indigenous, beautiful thing. It's African. It's Native American. It's indigenous European that got destroyed many years ago. We need to get back to some of these concepts because they're important. You need the feminine and the masculine. So mentor comes as a teacher, guide. He's the helmsman, and he helps Telemachus look for his father. That's the first part of the, the Odyssey. And as you know what happens, he does not find his father, by the way. He doesn't. He ends up coming back. And his father comes back too. So they end up coming together. But Telemachus has now been through something. He's been through an adventure. 
an ordeal. Trying to find his father, the goal wasn't for him to find his father. The goal was for him to find himself. You understand what I'm getting at? The goal was for him to find his own internal strength, to find the strength to come back. And even if his father wasn't there, then he can handle the problem of the kingdom. That's why it's an important story. Because this is what we don't do with our young people. We don't help them understand what they're going through. If they're going to prison, you're going to go through that kind of hell. Learn something from it. Carry it inside of you. What is it that you, that ordeal teaches you? That adventure, that life, that pain, what does it teach you? So you can come back and help the realm. You can come back and help the community. You can come back and help the society. You can come back and make it better. This is what Telemachus comes back. And guess what? With Odysseus and Telemachus together, eventually the story goes. They end up killing all the suitors. They get back the kingdom. He gets back his wife and the mother. And everything happens in a good way, right? But that's the story. Finding home. Knowing how to get home. Finding that homing instinct that you have within you. Because I have seen a lot of people raging fools. How many of you are raging fools? Raise your hand. Don't lie. There's a lot more raging fools out there. I know you guys are raging fools. And you know what I'm talking about? When you go blind and you go so angry, you love your kid, but they can drive you up the wall, right? And you're like, and you do something terrible. And you smacked them, you dunked, whatever it was. We're all raging fools. How do we find our home? How do we center ourselves? How do we find our peace? There's a beautiful concept in the bullring, and I'm not much of a bullring. I don't really care for the bullring myself. I never, I always, the reason why is because every time I saw them, I kept rooting for the bull. But, um, but there's a beautiful concept in there, and that's the concept of querencia. Querencia actually means the homing instinct. And what it is, is the bull is the most dangerous when he finds his querencia. And that bull goes around that ring and you know, tries to get a point where he can attack. And you know what they do? Before the matador kills them, the picadores have to weaken them, to distract them, to disorient. It almost feels like how we are in society. We're being pushed around and weakened and picked on all the time. We're off our cadencia. We're off our home. We're off our homing instinct. We don't even know how to get there. And then, of course, the kill comes, right? And it's easy to kill people who are doing stupid things. Because we do stupid things. Okay, you go to jail. You do this. They've got so many ways to get rid of us. But they got us all off from the very young age. So this is what happens with the bull. The bull is lost, confused. But every once in a while, he will find his credential. He gets in that part of the bull ring where he is so powerful, so you can't even shake him. That's when the matador starts running. <laughs> no, he don't start running, but that's where his bravery has to be because that's when the bull is the strongest, is the most firm, and the most full, and that's when he's more in danger. So this is why I say it's important to know how to get home. All of Western literature is based on the Odyssey, and that's the struggle to get home. And when we don't have a home for people to come home to, then we're not doing justice to anybody. If our communities are being squeezed, we're not helping recreate and help those communities. If we're putting injunctions on whole neighborhoods and arresting whole neighborhoods, we're not helping those neighborhoods get strong and be able to handle these things. So I need to end <laughs> because this is going to be a long day for all of you and it's going to be a long day and it's good. And I really wanted to share these things with you all because it's important for you to think of things and throw them around and all your stories are important. And remember that really what our goal of our life is to actually live out our stories. Live them out. 
Somebody was saying those stories are written before you're born. You know what I'm saying? You're, you're, you're supposed to live out a story. And maybe you don't even know what your story is. That'd be good to find out. In the workshops I do in prisons, in the juvenile halls, and in the schools, my whole goal is to find your story. Always running is not any good if it's just me. And if you've got a story, you've got to put it out there. You don't have to do it in this form, in some kind of form. Young people are dying for the fact that we don't take the risk to tell our stories. Dying because they don't got nobody that they can look to and say, what have you been through? Show me the ropes. Dying because they don't even got, you know, and you can't even depend. People, the old veteranos and OGs can't even come in long help and help them long. Some of them are all lost and heroin addicted and crystal meth, and they can't even help them. They don't even got mentoring in the gangs anymore. So we have to step in. When everybody else has stepped out, as my good friend Father Greg Boyle says, and tell our stories and help other people tell their stories and get those stories to come together and be the story of our community. And like I say, this is not against the police. This is not against any of that stuff. But you know what it is? It's about real, vibrant, imaginative, alive, and reinvigorated communities and families and homes. And let's not squeeze our communities. Let's make them stronger. Let's not tell young people to get out of prisons and nobody's going to welcome them. Let's welcome them in a proper way. But welcome them so they can come back and do some good in this community and do some good in this world. All of us have the potential to do good out of whatever bad we've gotten. All of us have potential to make beauty out of whatever ugly we've lived through. All of us got potential to make poetry out of every violence that's ever happened to us. And that's what we got to teach our young people, to live a decent, wholesome life. Be a poet, be an artist, be a singer, be a dancer, and dream. Dream big and don't stop those dreaming. Thank you very much. Let's give it up for Luis Rodriguez. Thank you very much. I do want to mention that um, Luis's books, autograph books, will be for sale immediately after the summit at 4 p.m. Uh, in the lobby here. Uh, I ask our next panel to come up, please. Uh, decreasing disproportionate impacts of violence and incarceration. Again, I'd like all the panelists to come up and please be seated. Thank you.